Welcome to Monster Kid Radio, episode number seven. I am your producer and host, Derek M. Cook, and this is the podcast where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm really excited about the movie we're talking about this week, as well as the guests that we've got coming on. I'll talk about that here in a second. First, I want to talk a little bit about the music that you're hearing right now. This is music that appears with permission from the band Outer Space Heaters. The song is called Escape Velocity from their album Desolate Surf. You'll be able to hear the song in its entirety at the end of this episode. Let's talk about our contact information. Our website's over at monsterkidradio.net. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And our phone number is 503-479-5MKR. If you have any feedback for the show, any voicemails or any comments that you want to leave regarding movies that we've talked about on the show, movies you want us to talk about, just your own thoughts about, well, any classic genre movie, call it in. Let us know. I'm working on putting together a special feedback episode down the line. I'd love to make you guys and gals part of that episode. I've been fiddling with our website a little bit. Over on the left-hand side of the screen, it's a little bit more prominent. It's a little small, but it's there. We have a link to our Flickr album. Anytime there's a Monster Kid Radio event, and there are pictures taken. I'll try to make sure that they get included in the Flickr page so you can check that out. Over on the right-hand side of the screen, you will find the essential trailers. Now, this goes to our YouTube channel. This is a collection of trailers from classic movies. I try to add a new trailer or two every week or so. It says here that it's updated weekly on the website, so I suppose I ought to do something for this week. So go check that out. There's just a handful of cool trailers there. I don't have much in our YouTube channel just yet, but... As the show continues, we may end up with more and more video content. So look us up on YouTube and like us there or subscribe to us. Give us a thumbs up. Still haven't figured out how the YouTube thing works. This episode is going out on June 18th. It's a Tuesday, which means tomorrow is Weird Wednesday at the Joy Cinema. You can find out more about them over at thejoycinema.com. Now, Weird Wednesday is where the Joy Cinema brings in a weird movie and plays it for free. This week, they are showing 1962's Wild Guitar from director Ray Dennis Steckler, starring Arch Hall Jr. They are located at 11959 Southwest Pacific Highway in Tigard. Check them out. If you do go over there and catch one of the movies, let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Now, future movies in this series include things like The Acid Eaters, Iga, and Guess What Happened to Count Dracula. I'm going to be paying attention and talking to the joy on a regular basis. As more movies are announced as part of the Weird Wednesday series, I'll let you guys know so you guys can go check that out and support them. All right, I want to talk about who we've got here on the show. If you are a longtime listener of Horror Podcast, you'll recognize the voice. You'll recognize the name. If you listen to things like Dread Media, The B-Movie Cast, 1951 Down Place, or even my own Late Lamented Mail Order Zombie Podcast, the name Richard from Wichita will be familiar to you. Well, I now know him as Rich Chamberlain, the man behind Monster Movie Kid, the blog over at MonsterMovieKidWordPress.com. Over here, he talks about the classic monster movies, being a monster kid, talks about action movies, sci-fi, comedy, that sort of thing. In fact, this past week, he was doing a countdown to Superman movies. He was calling it the Krypton Countdown as he was getting ready for Man of Steel. 
and I'm sure he'll talk about his thoughts about Man of Steel over at his website. So you guys are going to want to check that out. There will be a link to his website over at our website at monsterkidradio.net, so you can check that out. Now, when I put the call out to talk about you know these classic monster movies, these classic fantasy horror sci-fi films, surprisingly, I got a number of people who wanted to talk about science fiction movies, which isn't necessarily out of my realm of experience. I love science fiction films, especially some of the older sci-fi films. I grew up a Star Wars kid, for crying out loud. I mean, I love this stuff. I guess I just assumed that when I said I'm doing a show called Monster Kid Radio, people were going to want to do horror movies. But, you know, I got a number of people wanting to do these sci-fi flicks, and Rich picked The Day the Earth Stood Still. I'm really excited to talk to him about that, and I'm really excited to share part one of our conversation with the Monster Kid Radio listeners, and we'll check that out right after this. Hammer Film Productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Down Place is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts, describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. Um, well, Hammer means how to get a nail into a block of wood. This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes and other information about these classic films. 1951 Down Place can be found in iTunes or their website www.1951downplace.com Should I have said Hammer Pants? 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Klaatu, Barata, Necktie, Nectar, Nickel, Noodle. It's one of those words. I can never get it right. But I did something right by saying those words because I've managed to conjure podcasting's famous or infamous, perhaps, Richard from Wichita. How are you doing, man? I am doing good. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. So if you listen to any podcasts, you know this guy's voice. But do you know his words? He's got a blog. He's got a website out there. What's it called, man? MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. And that launched in October of 2012. That is correct. I, I launched with a very ambitious 31 days of horror, and I, I reviewed 31 movies during the course of the month. And there were some pretty challenging days to try to get a movie cranked in there and get it written and get it out. But I succeeded 31 consecutive days. Now, if you read his blog, you know, you know, he's been a fan of this kind of stuff for years. But if you've been listening to podcasts, like I said, you've been hearing his voice in at least, you know, my couple of shows, a few other shows out there, you know, the voice, you know, the name. How long have you been listening to podcasts? Gosh, I'm going to say maybe five, six years ago now. I can remember the very first two podcasts that I listened to. Uh, I can't remember the first one, but I remember listening to Joe Barlow's Cinema Slave. Yeah. And uh, then listening to uh, Podshock, which is the Doctor Who podcast. They're still doing it, but I, I haven't listened to the show for a few years. But one of those had an advertisement for the other. And so those were my first two podcast and that's kind of what got me started was I actually left a voicemail for Cinema Slave. I can't even remember the movie that, that Joe was talking about, but 
his response to my voicemail gave me a lot of encouragement because prior to that, I was just beginning to tap into the internet community and realize that there are upster movie kids out there like me. You know, I, I didn't really have anyone growing up that was into to a lot of the same movies and stuff as I was. I had some friends who liked Doctor Who, but I was kind of alone in that, my love for Star Trek and that kind of stuff. And it wasn't until here kind of in the last six, seven years that I've really realized that there is this whole community out there and that I'm, I'm not alone. So <laughs> it was, uh, once I got that, that positive feedback from Joe, I just, it kind of, I, I started trying new podcasts and, uh, you know, some of them I have listened to from the very beginning, uh, mail order zombie being one, as soon as I uh, tapped in, I think I was like a week or two behind when you launched. But after that, I've, I've listened, you know, each and every week and, you know, some other podcasts I kind of, you know, tried out for a while and didn't like. For me, I like it when the people behind the podcast are, are talking about the movies they love. They don't sit there and over harshly, critically review the movie. Like, you know, it comes out, you're hating the movie. It's like, why did you watch it? Yeah, I guess I'm a bit more old school. I, I really kind of appreciate these films. And uh, those are the podcasts that I tend to gravitate towards. So I've got a handful of them now that, that I, I've stuck with here. Well, and that's one of the things that we're trying to do here at Monster Kid Radio is celebrate some of these movies. So when I put the call out for potential guests for the show, uh, you were one of the people that responded. And I, I threw it to you. Pick a movie that you like that we can talk about here on the show. And you picked. If you couldn't tell from our very beginning or my very beginning shtick, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Yeah, an absolute classic. This one uh, is, is one of those movies that for me dates back to my first 10 or 11 years. I, I'm a kid of the 70s, uh, uh, unfortunately. I'm getting up there in years, but uh, <laughs> um, I grew up without cable for about the first 11 years, and we didn't have a UHF station. You know, where so many other people did have UHF channels that, that they uh, would watch and, and, and would see a lot of these great movies. You know, I didn't have that, and so uh, we had basically three local channels, and only two of them played movies. And really only one of them played genre movies. And Day of the Earth Stood Still just happened to be one of those that would play occasionally. You know, usually they would play movies on Friday, Saturday nights, and they would play like Saturday afternoons and then Sundays when, you know, football wasn't in session. So uh, this is one of those movies I remember as a kid uh, loving the first time I saw it. And, and I have seen it countless times over the years. And so had no problem whatsoever once I finally got to thinking, because when you, you when you tell somebody pick a movie that you like in this genre, all of a sudden ten thousand movies came to my head. But this one was one I finally sat down and said, you know, I just rewatched this a couple years ago on Blu-ray, and it really is one of my go-to films. So didn't have a problem <laughs> finally narrowing down that yeah, this one is definitely one I wanted to talk about. Yeah, I have that same problem. Like I have, I can tell you off the top of my head, right off the bat, my top two, maybe three movies of all time. But then once you get past that, you're like, wow, I, I have no idea because I love so many movies. My shelves are a drooping under the weight of all the folders of DVDs and Blu-rays over there. There's so many movies out there that I love so much. So I'm glad you picked one that uh, is one of your go-tos. Before we started recording, you said this is a Desert Island film for you. Yeah, this uh, and there's several different uh, versions of it out there. I mean, of the original story. I actually also uh, have vivid memories of the radio adaptation from Lux Radio Theater that date back to, I want to say, probably 79, I think was when I discovered that. I discovered old-time radio when my dad came home from a visit with a copy of Abbott and Costello's Who's on First. 
Nice. And got me. He got me addicted into it. It was. Uh, I remember the company Radio Reruns. It was on audio cassette, and I got their catalog. And and uh, then I discovered that the library had a shelf full of uh, audio cassettes of old time radio shows. And I very vividly remember this being one of the first ones that I, I checked out. And um, it's very much like the movie. I don't know. Are you familiar with Lux Radio Theater? I am familiar with the with the old time radio shows i guess they didn't call them audio dramas back then but uh yeah i'm familiar with a lot of them and i do i cycle i go through phases where you know part of the year that's all i listen to to the detriment of being on top of all my favorite podcasts and yeah. then, you know then i'll switch over where i let them all build up and then you know i just listen to my podcasts but uh, i am familiar with uh, a lot of the older style the old school you know i guess classic radio dramas i've never listened to the day the earth stood still though well, Lux Radio Theater, what they would do is they would add a, you know, do adaptations of popular movies of the day. And in the early years of the show, which I think dated back, back to the late 30s, so it was one of the earliest radio dramas, Cecil B. DeMille was actually the host. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was, it was Lux Soap was the sponsor. So that's where you get the Lux Radio Theater. And uh, some of those advertisements are just hilarious to listen to. All these the actresses of the day talking about how they, all the different ways they would use Lux soap to make their hair beautiful and their skin shine. And uh, and here Cecil B. DeMille trying to sound real serious when he's talking to him about it. But usually they would do the adaptations, clo- you know, the same year or closely uh, the year that the movie came out, and they would use much of the same cast. And so this this adaptation actually happened three years later, in 1954. But they got Michael Rennie to come back and, and play Klaatu, and um, Billy Gray came back as Bobby. Now, they had a different actress play the, the character of Helen. Patricia Neal, uh, I don't think, did radio, but you know, so sometimes they would have other actors or actresses kind of substitute the role. But it wouldn't work if you, it, a lot of times if you had, like, for example, they did Miracle on 34th Street. you got to have Ed Gwynn play Chris Kringle. If it was somebody else, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't. Occasionally, they would get somebody else to play the lead role of a movie, and it would hurt it. The adaptation wouldn't work. But a lot of times, they would do scene for scene from the from the movie. Uh, they would have to obviously cram it into an hour. But the shorter the movie, the more likelihood you're going to get all of your key scenes in there. And the radio adaptation actually did a really good job of including a lot of the the key scenes and and really kind of actually made it a really faster paced story. Although the pace of the movie is great. If they're cramming it into an hour, it actually kind of worked. So um, I listened to that again. I think it's by 1979 was the first time I listened to it. And, and I hadn't listened to it in quite a while. I've had it in my collection for, for years, but it had been probably, you know, 10 years since I'd listened to it. So it was fun listening to it this morning. You know, while we were talking here, I was looking online to see if it's something that I can find uh, easily. And, you know, YouTube seems to have it. I, I'll check it out later and see if the link's still valid. Now I'm excited to check that out. And Michael Rini's voice, I'm glad he's still doing it too, because he's, He's got a very distinct voice. He had a very distinct look in the movie, but he's got a very distinct voice as well that went along with that. So that's great that they brought him back for that. And then Billy Gray, um, does his voice change too much being the movie and the radio? I, you know, I didn't notice that there had been much of a change, maybe a little bit. This was getting close to the time that he was getting ready to start. I thought I know his best. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think. Father Knows Best maybe started around the mid-50s, if I remember correctly, maybe the later 50s. So he was – I remember watching Father Knows Best as a kid, and I remember he, he aged a lot in that series. And, and But when the series started, he still kind of sounded like the character from Davey Earth Stood Still. But by the end of the series, he had, he had kind of hit puberty and, and the voice changed. Okay. By 1954, he was, or he was still young enough that 
that his voice hadn't changed. As I remember when I listened, I, I didn't notice a difference. Excellent. Well, you know, we're kind of dancing around it, and I think a lot of people know what the basic story of The Day the Earth Stood Still is. It's kind of a classic sci-fi story. I mean, it is one of the classic sci-fi stories. Uh, for those of you who don't know the basic premise of The Day the Earth Stood Still, uh, how, how would you describe it? Is it? It's not overly complicated, but it's still pretty deep. It is really deep, and I think that's what sets this apart from a lot of the sci-fi movies we got in the 50s, because in most cases, and there's a lot of great movies. I, I love oh, the, yeah. the monster movies or the alien movies that come down, but they're always very distinctly alien in most cases. This was a case where the character of Klaatu was very human-like. I mean, he, he was a human, and he, and he looked like Joe Average down the street. But clearly, you know, as the movie develops, he starts to reveal hidden powers, so to speak. And, and you become very aware that eh, he, he may look like us, but he is definitely much more intelligent. And, and he's got some, some hidden powers that, you know, actually, there's a few cases where, he, you know, you kind of question is like, is he, you know, kind of magical almost with a few of the things he does in the film. But essentially, it's it's the classic the aliens, you know, come down to Earth, but rather than invade, they are giving us a message and giving us an opportunity to clean up our act. You know, they were content, as, as they say earlier on the movie, Klaatu says, you know, we were basically content letting letting you war amongst yourselves as long as it didn't bother everyone else in the neighborhood and <laughs> the in the galactic neighborhood. You know, you right. guys do what you do in, in your house, that's fine. But when you start, you know, impacting everyone else. Then we're going to have to stand up and say, okay, got some issues with what you're doing here. And that's what this movie's about. Of course, it all tied into the atomic age that we had entered with the the Cold War right. that was now present in the aftermath of World War II. And that's where there's a lot of similarities in, in some of the themes that are introduced in the movie as, as to what the average American was, was feeling and thinking in 1951. And I think that's what, you know, in some ways makes it a very topical film of the day. But the way it's presented still really resonates with, with today. I mean, watching this movie 62 years later, and honestly, the you know, a lot of the ideas are still, you know, very prevalent in, in what we, we go through today. Yeah, it's definitely one of the things uh, about this movie that I noticed that sets it from, like, the Universal Sci-Fi Fair, you know, and I love Jack Arnold, don't get me wrong. I love, you know, the stuff that he did for Universal and the sci-fi, you know, the, the giant monsters and the aliens coming down. I love all that stuff. But something about this movie, while it definitely speaks to the time in which it was made, the messages are still timeless, whereas a lot of the Universal-type sci-fi movies of the era, they definitely speak to the time in which they're made, but they're not necessarily as timeless because – I don't know what the difference is, but there's something about this movie that you know still resonates. I mean – for right or you know, for, for better or worse, there's a reason why this one was remade, and something like Tarantula has not been remade. You know, the messages are still valid. Uh, you know, we we can definitely get too big for our britches before the Cosmic Homeowners Association shows up and says, "Hey, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're we're, we're going to have a problem if you keep this up, and if you go beyond the atmosphere, uh, you know." And I thought that was a, a really interesting approach to, like you said, we're, we're getting into the Cold War. We're a few years removed from everything that happened with World War II and the atomic bombs, you know, what we did in Japan. So, I mean, we're three years away from that. We're starting to get into this new era of who's going to build the bomb, you know, who's going to have the worst, biggest bombs, you know, whatever. I really, I'm not making much sense. I'm going to have to edit that part out. 
<laughs> There's definitely uh, an interesting transition between the giant monster movie and in a thoughtful sci-fi kind of almost cerebral approach to some of this material. Yeah, I think that that's why, as you said, that's why this movie is still very topical today because those are things, even though the Cold War is over, there is still threats uh, and so many of the same threats, although we, we don't necessarily fear the bomb like we did back in, in you know, even as, as recent as the 1980s. There's still, you know, the fear of, of terrorism and the enemy and, and what we're doing to our planet. Well, themes that are, are still maybe twist and turned a little bit from what they were in 51, but there's still thoughts that the common person has from day to day. And, and here you have, you know, this person who looks very human, but clearly is not you know, because he's got uh, this little friendly robot along with him that is going to take care of business if he needs to. And I think that I think that's what the, a lot of the, the true sides in this one, you've got special effects. They're, they're used, they're used effectively, but they haven't dated as, as much because you know, in some of the movies, if you've got a lot of flying saucer images and stuff, I mean, sometimes they're going to, they're just going to date, you know, special effects are going to move on and it's going to be hard to, to look at these movies. You can enjoy them, but you're not going to look at it as saying, well, this is something that could happen today. I think watching Dave Earth stood still, you could easily say, okay, you know, this, this could still happen today. A lot of the same things that happen are very much based in the reality, you know, okay. Alien lands, what's the military going to do? Well, they're going to shoot it. <laughs> and you know, that's what would happen today, you know, <laughs> You know, we're not, you know, there's going to be somebody with a trigger finger somewhere is going to go ahead and wants to shoot the alien. And I think that, uh, you know, as as, as the, the plot goes on, I know we're kind of sidestepping the plot, but there's a point later on in the movie where Claude T does something that he, he's hoping is going to kind of kick everyone into realizing that he's serious. And all it ends up doing is, you know, the military says, OK, now we really got to kill this guy. You know, now he's dangerous. We really got to kill him. And, and it kind of had the opposite effect of what he wanted to to accomplish. And, and there's an interesting, uh, deleted scene, um, that, that I don't know even know if you were aware about that they, they took out because the character of Claude too, he's very, you know, Michael Rennie had a very unique look, which is exactly why he got the role. He, very exotic facial structure, you know, had high cheekbones, uh, and his overall mannerisms and the way he spoke are almost alien-like in a way. They, they, they weren't the average, the way an average American spoke in 1951. He was very eloquent. He wasn't the, you know, kind of guy who was just, again, Joe Average, the guy working on the docks or whatever. He, he could blend in, but yet he would stand out if you really kind of paid attention to him. And that's exactly why Michael Rennie got the job. Some of the other actors I, I read that they had considered for the role were um, Spencer Tracy, who I think would have been horrible in the role. Spencer Tracy doesn't great actor, but didn't have the same facial features Not at all. that Michael Rennie had. And, no. and I think, and, and what they went for is they wanted to go with somebody who was totally unknown to the Hollywood audience. Spencer Tracy was too well known by that point. They wanted to go with Claude Rains. I think Claude Rains could have pulled it off, but again, Claude Rains was too well known. I think going with somebody who in 1951 was, was a relative unknown and quite honestly, Michael Rennie really didn't do any huge movies after Dave Earth stood still that were as iconic as that role. So a modern day audience watching the movie is not going to immediately recognize Michael Rennie, even if they're in into the genre, you know, they're not going to know him from other films for the most part. Whereas if you see Spencer Tracy, if you watch old movies, you're going to know who he was or even Claude Rains, 
you're going to recognize him from some of the other movies that he did in the 30s and 40s. Michael Rennie still kind of stands out as this unique image, you know, unless you really dive into to the genre and start seeing him in some other things. He did do some other genre work, but he did a lot of TV work. Uh, I remember him from uh, Lost in Space. He played the keeper <laughs> on, a, on a two-part episode of Lost in Space. But, uh, you know, he, he still has a very kind of, iconic image that's tied so directly to the day the earth stood still right and his mannerisms played into the, the alien factor of plot too and only in the deleted scene that they took out from later in the movie where he had a moment where he uh, do you remember in, in the in the movie the the scene where um the uh the fbi agent comes to the house and picks up plot two to take him to go see professor barnhart mm-hmm then all of a sudden, when you get to Professor Barnhart's house, he's with uh, a military officer. He's not with the FBI agent anymore. I noticed that when I saw it. I was like, well, what happened to the guy that picked him up? All of a sudden, he's passed him off to the military. There's a whole scene that they took out where the FBI agent actually took him to the police. And he witnesses a person getting beat by a crowd who think that, he's, that this man is the alien. And he's Klaatu. And Klaatu is disgusted by seeing the worst of mankind right there. And he actually gets very, I won't say violent, but he gets very hostile, which was totally opposite of the way he played the character throughout the whole rest of the movie. And then the military comes in and takes him to go see Professor Bonner. That's why you had a different person. And they took that scene out because it ruined the tone of the character, ruined the tone of the film. And supposedly that footage is, is long gone. But it'd be interesting to see, but I think it was a, they were smart in taking it out because Klaatu is very even until you get to the very end of the film where he's got a little bit of a curt tone when he finally gives the, the, the warning message to, to Earth. You know, I want to comment a little bit more about that, too. So I agree with you. Uh, I think Spencer Tracy would have been horrible for this role. Uh, I, I just would not have worked. You needed somebody who had that statuesque kind of look and I'm, I'm not talking like big buff olympian kind of statuesque but you know michael rennie looks like he was or the character of Klaatu looks like he was crafted specifically to be kind of this idealized kind of specimen of humanity still able to blend in as best they can but still he stands out a little bit because he is he's tall he's he's regal he's got the cheekbones in the way he speaks, at one point, the uh, I believe it's the person who runs the house accuses him of having a, a New England accent, which, you know, was one of those things that was associated with kind of like an upper class, kind of more intelligent, more refined uh, for the 50s, especially in those types of movies. So, you know, again, I think it was a perfect casting choice. Uh, my experience with Michael Rennie before and after this, really, I, I don't have a lot of Michael Rennie in my uh, filmography, my, my DVD collection here, or anything like that. But I was just looking at his IMDb before we started recording. His listing on the IMDb listed him as playing the Sandman in the Batman TV series in the 60s. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. So, and, yeah. and I do remember that specifically. I know he was only in like one episode or whatever, but he's a really different kind of character <laughs> as the Sandman. Yeah. So you can definitely see the range in his acting ability as well. So, again, very good casting choice with Michael Rennie. Pretty much carries the movie. I mean, he's charismatic. He's enigmatic. He's a little threatening when he's able to do the things that he does. He's called it. Sometimes it looks like magic. You know, this is a pretty all powerful being who could wipe us all out if we wanted to. 
Yeah, he can unlock doors, apparently. <laughs> um, <laughs> he did that a couple of times in the movie, which I thought was, was a little odd, you know. But then again, you don't see him actually do it, which kind of adds to the mystery of like, well, you know, you know, is he just is he strong? Does he just break the door or does he do something to the, the mechanism in the lock? It's always kind of done off camera. So I thought that was yeah, kind of interesting. It was one of the things like, hey, just a hint. And sometimes that's interesting, you know. I like it when they sometimes will throw those things out. Some people will find, you know, nitpick, you know, and say, Oh, that's, that's a plot hole or that's that, you know, something like that. I kind of like, it's like, it adds a little bit of mystery. I don't necessarily always want everything laid out to me and explained, you know, I don't necessarily want a gaping plot hole, but I, you know, I don't mind those little things that, that kind of leave you wondering and thinking is like, well, was he really, you know, how, what, you know, what powers did he have? You know, I don't, I don't need a, a, a manual to let me know everything that he could and couldn't do. I, I kind of like that little level of mystery that they threw out about the character. Right. You mentioned how he was kind of crafted, you know, just the way he looked. Are you familiar with the short story at all? You know, I've never read it, but my understanding is that that's actually part of the deal, right? That's part of the story. Exactly. Yeah, I listened to part of it this morning. It's an extra on the DVD. That they had an audio reading. They had a great documentary on the Blu-ray about the the author of, of the short story. That's actually kind of sad. Um, Harry Bates was the the farewell to the master. Ironically, they don't really use much from the short story in the movie. They used a couple of the ideas. The, the short story itself is very different, and the the kind of the punchline at the end of the the short story. Spoiler alert here for a story that was written in 1940. <laughs> the uh, Klaatu is is actually a clone. And the masters are actually the robots. You kind of get that a little bit in the movie where they talk about basically they've turned over law and order to the to the robot. But in the in the book, it's like no, they've pretty much turned over everything over to the robots. The robots are the true masters, and it's uh, that's kind of an interesting kind of twist. And actually, it it, it adds it would have been kind of a cool punchline for like a Twilight Zone episode where Gort uh, he's known as Nut or Gnut G N U T in the short story. I like Gort a lot better. Now, he, he would have revealed, like, at the end of the Twilight Zone episode, you know, no, you are mistaken. I am the master. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's told from a reporter's point of view. Uh, but Harry Bates um, only got paid $500 for his use of the, of the short story. The publishers got paid 1000 He actually wrote it in 1940. And it was like an astounding science fiction magazine, you know, one of those pulp sci-fi magazines that everyone wrote for in the day. He was very bitter about it, literally in, until his death, that that he was paid such a small amount and they used so little of his original story. The sad thing is, is that uh, they they did an interview and there's a little bit of an audio clip uh, on the on the Blu-ray that he was actually a very uh, destitute individual at the end of his life. Uh, he was living kind of in squalor and he was rewriting a lot of his works. He had refused to have them republished because he was rewriting them and kind of improving upon them, and he was going to have them republished. Then he died, um, and, and it's believed that they were destroyed. So his, his rewritten versions that he was hoping to have published uh, never saw the light of day, and, and to the best of everyone's knowledge, is, are, are now long gone. So his, his work is, is now very hard to find. A lot of those, those pulp novels are, are, were thrown away because they were just kind of throwaway magazines. So... I, to the best of my knowledge, this is the only story that he wrote that is actually still available for, for people to read. And that's only because it was used for Dave Earth Stood Still. Uh, any of his other work, I think, is almost impossible to find. 
Yeah, it definitely sounds like it's more of a, a Rod Serling style type story, and that they they turned it into something different. And and I feel like writers don't necessarily get the credit they deserve sometimes, especially from this area or this era of Hollywood and this genre of filmmaking. That it, it's unfortunate that somebody like that who ultimately created something that became this classic, iconic sci-fi movie, whether there's much of his original story in it or not, it's unfortunate somebody had to live out the rest of his life like that. I think even today, I mean, it's obviously the stars and directors and to a lesser extent producers are are typically, everyone always talks about the screenplay. He writes a screenplay, you know, very seldom do you you hear the screenplay, you know, uh, lauded, you know, when the movie is released. It's always the stars are the director. Uh, or, you know, like I said, uh, Guillermo del Toro is probably one of the most well-known producers. And he's kind of almost to the point where he's just putting his name on a lot of stuff. He, he believes in passionately in the movie if he puts his name on it, but his name is getting attached to a lot of work that he actually has had very little to do with. Sure. You know, the authors, yeah, unfortunately don't get the, don't get the credit that they so rightfully deserve because without a good story, you don't have to. You got nothing, man. You got, you got nothing. nothing. <laughs> All right. So, you know, we've talked about the story. Uh, just to kind of briefly encapsulate the story here, it, it starts with something that immediately tells everybody this is a science fiction film. And that's that beautiful film score kicking off over the title sequence, which is just a bunch of shots of the Earth from space with the titles. But the film score immediately identifies this movie as as classic sci-fi. I, I assume back when it was first released, you know, the theremin was especially associated with, with genre filmmaking. Uh, but, man, to listen to it now, it holds up such a good score. And that was Herman, wasn't it? Yes. We actually recently read where his, his wife, or I guess widow, um, she was not a fan of his of his work as a theremin being so closely tied into the to the sci-fi horror genre. <laughs> Um, she, she felt that diminished the uh, the uh, the theremin uh, in, in its uniqueness, and I'm kind of thinking I don't know of any other film genre that that would have been able to use the theremin as effectively as the the sci-fi genre. Yeah, so I can't think of anything. I was either. kind of I was kind of surprised to read that that uh, yeah, music it, it's iconic. Oh, I mean, the first yeah. as soon as you see you know the words hit the screen and and the whole opening sequence. I mean, I any type of, of sci-fi compilation soundtrack, you're almost guaranteed you're going to hear a snippet of Davey Erston mm-hmm. still. As you should. <laughs> As you should, it, definitely. It I know you You are the master of of, uh, of soundtracks, so I, <laughs> I thought of you immediately. Actually, I went, after I chose this movie, I was like, yeah, this is one of those iconic soundtracks. I, I you know, I'm, I'm sure you have or have had <laughs> the, the soundtrack in your collection. It's just iconic that the, the the radar sequence, the music that's mm-hmm. used when they're showing the radar is just uh, very memorable for me. I, I remember having a, a soundtrack in the 70s, again, going back to the 70s, that actually had snippets from Bathier Stood Still. And that, you know, I think that that was like right after I saw the movie. And I just remember being connected to that. I heard the music. I was like, oh, that's, that's Klaatu Barada Nikto, or Necktie, as you said earlier. <laughs> Noodle, Nectar. Noodle, there yeah, you go. <laughs> definitely an N-word. No, the the score is on my iPod. Uh, it's been a mainstay of my soundtrack collection since I started collecting uh, film scores from older movies. Once I decided that I love this particular era of filmmaking, this is definitely one that I've had and listened to repeatedly. <laughs> so, yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> as soon as you settled on this movie, I was like, yes. 
So we get these these wonderful opening titles shots with the wonderful music. And yeah, we have the flying saucer come down to Earth. And and we're just going to do this real you know, kind of brief. I don't want to get too in-depth about it because I think most people already know the story. Flying saucer come down to Earth. The military quarants it off. Everybody watches in suspense as eventually the flying saucer opens up and out walks Klaatu in a, in a decent costume for the time and i think it still holds up now i mean the way the helmet is built it almost looks and i know this isn't the case i know this was a practical effect and they couldn't have done it back then this way but it almost looks as if the eyes are superimposed somehow behind the mesh it just makes it feel a little more unworldly to me i really like it (laughs) it's michael rennie behind the mask but it i mean it looks because of how it's built and designed very otherworldly, even though it's a man's shape. And then he pulls out that device. I do question the wisdom here. They've been monitoring our planet for years. They know what we're about. They know what we do. I would think they would know that pulling out a device that pops open once he points it at somebody, they would understand that that might be considered a threatening <laughs> action. So when he gets shot because of it, kind of would have thought he knew it was coming, right? Am I? Yeah, there's a couple of couple of big plot holes with the movie that you have to overlook uh, and can easily be overlooked. Oh, yeah. That is, that's one, that's one of, of, of a couple that stands out. I was like, yeah, you haven't been monitoring too much. <laughs> if you're going to whip out a device like that and, and know what the response you're going to get. Mm. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing the movie. I'm not saying it's a bad movie because of it, but it is one of those things that, and I've talked about this over on some of my other podcasts. There are movies that I absolutely love, but I love them so much the only thing that I can find about them to criticize, if, if I have to criticize at all, are the little nitpicks and these little things here and yeah. there. So uh, consider it a sign of uh, admiration, I suppose, <laughs> that I have these little nitpicks here and there. But they shoot him. They bring him into the hospital and he explains, you know, well, you just blew it. Uh, that device would have let your president talk to pull another star system's way to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I kind of missed out on Gort. Let's talk about Gort. Gort comes out after Klaatu is shot. And Gort is the one that we should be worried about because Gort does not take kindly to all the guns being pointed in their general direction. And at first, the first time I saw this, I thought it was really silly that Gort basically shoots a heat wave or something, a a laser at the guys holding the guns. And then they just drop the guns, kind of like not even really acting to what's going on. They just drop them. But then he disintegrates the tank. And that becomes... It finally sank in yeah, for me that this now this thing is a threat. Yeah, it's very apparent that early on. I was like, okay, you need to stand down. And I think that's kind of the message that, that Gort was given. Is like, I'm gonna take your weapons out of your hand, and this is what I could really have done to you. Mm-hmm. And and as a precursor to what he ends up doing towards the end of the movie. Oh yeah. Know? And and there's references that that you know Gort is one of those individuals. He's a, he's a robot that could pretty much wipe out the planet. Mm-hmm. Because it's he's impenetrable, the skin, and it's he does really look. He's very. There's only a few scenes when when Gort, you know, you think that he could be a man in the suit. But he does have kind of a, a really good. The suit is this kind of a solid suit at times that that really does kind of look like he is just this kind of big lumbering robot. But when the visor goes up, he's all business and he could wipe things out pretty quickly. Definitely. Well, Clatu gets Gort to stand down, and they take Clatu to the hospital, and they start 
interrogating him. I mean, it's, he heals up. You know, they got to get heal him up and all because they shot him. But they start interrogating him, and it becomes pretty clear to Kletu, the prisoner here, until they get what they want out of him. They're not going to give him what he wants. They're not going to put all the world leaders together in a room so Klaatu can talk to them all together all at once. So Klaatu has to break out and is on the run until he finds a boarding house where he shacks up with Aunt B. Aunt B, <laughs> yes. <laughs> she didn't have much of a role, but uh, yeah, as soon as you see her, it's like, you know, gosh, where's Andy and Opie? Yeah, exactly. You can't mistake her. And this was her first film, from what I understand. So uh, this is pre-Andy uh, Griffith time. But uh, yeah, so Aunt B's there. She's uh, Francis is a Bavier, Bavier. I, I don't know how to pronounce her last name. The actress. Yeah, I'm not either. Yeah. We'll go. We'll, Francis. Francis. Yeah, Aunt B. And she's a very small part of the movie, but she's got such a distinct voice. You can't help but miss her. Really, the people in the boarding house we're going to worry the most about are Bobby and Helen, played by Billy Gray, as we mentioned earlier, and Patricia Neal. Single mother. Yeah, that was not very common entirely in 1951, except, of course, they very quickly tied into the fact that yeah, the father was was lost in World War II, right. which I guess in some respects probably was was common uh, in 1951. So I'm sure there were some some single women for a while, but I kind of think most of them probably remarried fairly quickly because that was pretty common that uh, you, you didn't stay single. Mother wouldn't stay single; she was going to find a new husband, which she's in the process of finding as 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 we are introduced to another character. In the yeah, movie. Tom Stevens, played by Hugh Marlowe, who rightly becomes jealous, I think, maybe a little protective once uh, once Klaatu starts showing so much interest in, in hanging out with Bobby. And because he's hanging out with Bobby, you know, Helen becomes very interested in Klaatu. What's this strange man doing? Which would not fly today at all. Uh, the relationship no. that Klaatu and Bobby have is not something that would fly at all. But, uh, you know, Hugh Marlowe, Tom, gets very concerned and suspicious, especially after Bobby follows Klaatu back to his flying saucer one night. That was an awesome Oh, it's great, isn't it? Again, music makes that scene. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the the soundtrack makes that makes that scene. And uh, But again, I mean, it's, it's, so many of these, these incidents were accepted in 1951. Again, you wouldn't be able to, to pull off a relationship like, uh, you know, like Bobby and, and uh, you know, Mr. Carpenter had right. back then. <laughs> and mother wouldn't sit there and say, well, yes, you've just moved into the boarding house. You're a stranger. Please take my son for the day. I know, <laughs> it's right? It's not going to happen. <laughs> I think I have to admit I have to think it almost had to have been strange to a point even in 1951. She she clearly was more concerned about spending the day with uh, Mr. Stevens uh, as they were clearly reaching a point in their relationship where there was some marriage being talked about. So uh, I think uh, and certainly Mr. Stevens could have cared less where where Bobby was going. Was like yes please let him go off with the strange man. Yeah right. I've got the I've got the car. We've got a picnic plan. Yep. Yeah, yeah. There's only like once or twice where Mr. Evans uh, even references Bobby, like as if he's a concern. You know, when he's telling uh, Helen, it would be nice if I could tell my boss I have two dependents all of a sudden. You know, and it, it really, other than that though, it's more about hooking up with Helen versus becoming the, the father figure for Bobby. It kind of reminds me. Uh, there's a Christmas movie. I can't think of the name of the movie now. It's got Robert Mitchum. It, there's a, a character in the movie that is clearly more interested in 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 the wife, you know, or, or the or the the woman than uh, than the son. Although he makes a few attempts to try to to get the boy to like him, it, it becomes pretty obvious that yeah, th- the boy really doesn't matter. I'm more so interested in the mom. But if if I if I got to go through the boy to get to the mom, that's exactly what I'll do. And that was again kind of a 
mentality of the day where, where kids were, you know, seen, not heard kind of thing. And that's mm-hmm. clearly what, what Tom Stevens, you know, his intentions were more towards the mom. Sure. And Bobby was just kind of collateral along for the ride. There are a handful of things in this movie that, you know, we talked about single mother, uh, the approach, you know, Stevens's uh, pursuit of uh, Helen is something else just as a throwaway uh, scene. And they don't become big players in the movie, but at the very beginning when everybody's the crowds are gathering around the flying saucer, there's some African-Americans in the crowd. Yeah. And today, obviously, no big deal. Would be surprised if you didn't see multiple races in a crowd scene like that, especially in a place like Washington, D.C. But I, I can't imagine or I try to imagine what it would have been like back in 51 to see that. Yeah. Yeah. And I had never really thought about that until you mentioned it, but I remember, I, I mean, I saw them, but I, I didn't really kind of think about the context. And that is probably one of the very few times I can even think of, of an African American being seen in, in any of the sci-fi movies of the fifties. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would show up in, in the horror movies of the thirties and forties, but were usually the more of the comic relief or as a servant, you know, it was probably the sixties, seventies almost before you would start seeing an African American actor in, in a more prominent role. And so I I can't think of any other sci fi movies that even had uh African American characters in the background. Come to think of it. It just kinda caught me as like, hey, wait a you know, it's almost a blink and you might miss it kind of moment, but yeah, especially for a big studio film at the time. Yeah, that's twentieth century yeah. Fox. So that's this and it was something that they would have been certainly cognizant of making the film. So that's uh, that is kind of impressive. <sighs> But yeah, I mean, the, the bottom line is we, we get to a point to where Stevens turns in Klaatu because he's figured it out. He's figured out Mr. Carpenter is really Klaatu, the runaway spaceman, gets the government involved, and it turns into the government trying to get their hands back on Klaatu. Something happens to Klaatu. Gort's going to wipe out the world unless Klaatu can get Helen to go deliver a message to Gort to get him to stand down. Of course, I did skip over the big demonstration of power that Klaatu gives the world to show the world that he's serious, or at least the world leaders that he's serious. And that's wiping out all of the electricity on the planet all at once at the same time. They made a reference that he did, he did excuse a few things. He didn't do hospitals or exactly. airplanes in flight. And there was, there was actually uh, a blooper. <laughs> I never realized it until I saw this this morning when they show, I think it was England and everything was at a standstill. He did have a boat going down the channel. Oh, did you? <laughs> In the background. Yeah, I kind of thought that was funny. I never noticed that. I was like, well, maybe it, they didn't want to stop it mid, mid-rowing or something. I don't know. <laughs> Obviously, a little bit of a blooper. But yeah, that, that, that's, that's the whole premise of the, of the title of the movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Exactly. They, the, was it 30 minutes to an hour that, the, uh, that everything stood still? And uh, that's what turned the movie. Is all of a sudden, the military said, well, we, now we don't really want to capture this guy. We've got to kill him because... If he has the power to do this, we've got to stop yeah. him, which common sense would say, if he's got the power to stop everything working, you know, do we really want to go try to kill the guy? You know, chances are he's got some other weapons that, that are, are going to make, you know, you know, again, the military just kind of plunged forward and we're going to do this. And it's no surprise that, that the, uh, the army did not uh, cooperate with the making of the film. Yeah, no kidding, right? They, they, they they refused to do it. The National Guard did. They didn't care, but uh, the Army didn't really come off looking too good no. in the movie uh, in the few scenes they had. So no, not a surprise that the Army said, yeah, we'll pass on this one. This doesn't 
look like the movie that we want to, to represent the United States Army. I know. Yeah, definitely. I can totally understand that. But even today, as you said earlier, I feel like if this was something that were to happen today in real life, <laughs> uh, I, I think there would be um, – God, I don't want to sound disrespectful, but I do feel like there'd be uh, a more cowboy kind of approach to it versus, okay, let's hear what this guy's got to say. Yeah, yeah, I think that uh, I think you're right. I think that's that's unfortunate. That's exactly how how you know we'd immediately approach it. We'd go into defensive mode rather than than realize if they've got the technology to even come to our planet. That's something we don't have. So that's automatically puts them, you know, a notch or two above us. Uh, but common sense probably wouldn't kick in. You know, the military. You know, no offense to the military, but. There's going to be that automatic. We've got to. We've got to defend, and that's that they'd automatically kick into that mode, and it, it would somebody somewhere would have to be the to let logic prevail and and step in before you know something bad happens, which is exactly what happened at the beginning of this movie, and towards the end of this movie, you know. Well, the person who tries to have logic prevail in this movie is Professor Barnhart. Now, he's the scientist that Clad 2 has kind of chosen as, to be his mouthpiece, or at least his connection into the world leaders, or at least the world scientists. Uh, and, and he's played by Sam. Is it Jeff? I think it's Jeffy, Jeffy, I think is how it's pronounced. I liked him a lot in this. I thought he had just enough of that kind of crazed antisocial scientist thing going for him with the hairdo and everything. Yeah. And, and as an appropriate amount of respect for a being who is clearly capable of doing some pretty amazing things magical things because really it's technology we don't understand might as well call it magic right i really liked his performance in this and in his scenes with michael rennie's were second only to michael rennie and billy gray i felt like yeah i have this you know you just had to look you know just kind of the the scientific look with the poofed up hair and the kind of kind of overall expression on his face you know not maniacal but definitely eccentric and um you know, unfortunately, I mean, luckily they, they allowed him to be in the movie because he got kind of wrapped up in the Red Scare. Uh, and this was actually the last work he did for about seven years. Uh, he got on the blacklist for a while uh, until his name was eventually cleared and, and he started doing work again. But pretty much throughout the 1950s, he he wasn't in anything once he did this. And initially they wanted to remove him from the role, but Daryl Zanuck... Uh, said, no, we're going to keep him in. But then after that, he, he disappeared from Hollywood for, for most of the decade. That's unfortunate and kind of speaks to the opposite of what this movie's really about, you know, tolerance and you know, not one another and, and all of that. So that's really unfortunate. Yeah, it is. You know, he popped up in a few other genre films. On I, A few years ago, I saw uh, The Dunwich Horror. From yeah, I was about to say, I love him. In the Dunwich Horror. I love the Dunwich Horror, yeah. probably for all the wrong reasons. It's, it's a pretty cheesy 70s film, but I love that movie. And I love the soundtrack. <laughs> Go back to my soundtrack. Uh, he was also in uh, The Lost Horizon from 1937, oh, wow. which uh, is a movie I have not seen in a long time. And I remember, you know, that that's not a sci-fi film, but it's definitely got some fantasy elements in it. it it's not a straightforward adventure or drama. It's definitely got some some of the genre elements kind of mixed in mm -hmm. there. And, and I can't remember the character he played, but he, he's kind of had the same look. He, it's just him. Uh, that's, that's, that's Sam Jaffe. He's got this look. And, and from, from the time he was young in Hollywood to his later appearances on TV in the 1980s, he kind of looks the same and kind of almost acts the same in every role. That's just kind of his persona. 
which fit perfectly for this movie. Definitely. Huge thanks to Rich for dropping by and spending some time with us here at Monster Kid Radio. We're going to be back in a couple of days with part two of that conversation. So we'll talk a little bit more about that movie. Maybe talk a touch about the remake. We'll just have to see how it goes. Also, appearing in two days on the next episode of Monster Kid Radio, a brand new segment, something new that I'm going to be doing here. And uh, it'll be short, sweet, and I'm not going to tell you any more. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a tease. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivations, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that does not extend to the song Escape Velocity, which appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with permission of the band Outer Space Heaters. You can find out more about them over at outerspaceheaters.bandcamp.com or look them up over on Facebook. I'll talk to you in a couple of days. Mm-hmm.